the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week. It's the Monday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we try to do every weekday at 4 o'clock is to take your phone calls and answer Bible questions, life questions, questions about things going on in your church. We do the best we can to answer your questions, and all you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And though the streets are dry today for a change, it's still the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. I pray that it was a great weekend for you. Um, the rain kept some people away, uh, I'm told, but we had a great weekend Saturday afternoon. Actually, morning and afternoon, we had our uh, women's luncheon, and it was great. Paula um, spoke, and and, uh, lots of ladies got blessed. The food was great, I'm told. Uh, Tonight, because it's Monday, we're back on our full schedule with Bible studies, in case you're interested, ladies. uh, 7 o'clock, our ladies' uh, Bible study. They're, I think, in... Oh, I knew I... Oh, I can't remember the book right now. I'm just having a brain fade. Uh, but uh, I know Dr. Sheba Paley will be teaching tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, Pastor Ken is starting a new book uh, in uh, Isaiah uh, for the men on Monday nights. That's at 7 o'clock as well. But we also have our high school and junior high school age Bible studies as well, all at 7 o'clock. Everybody worships together, and they go in their separate directions. The ladies are in First Thessalonians. I knew that, but I just couldn't remember there uh, immediately. So all of that's available at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch it on live stream at calvarysa.com. One more time for phone number, and we'll get right to questions. 340-9585. Let's go to our first question. This is from our mobile app from Richard. And he says, uh, what spirit is being talked about in James chapter 4, verse 5? Um, The Holy Spirit is what's being spoken of, the spirit that has been given us in James. And it is, um, let me put it in context for, I'll go back a verse. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then he asks this rhetorical question. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? In other words, we're doing what we know we're not supposed to do. And because of that, the Holy Spirit, Richard, is uh, envious. You know, when Paul says that we are not to quench the Holy Spirit of God, it's an amazing thing to think about, that the power of God lives in us, the power that raised Christ from the dead. And we have the power through disobedience to quench. 
in James' context, he's talking about making compromises with the world, trying to get along in both places. I tell our church all the time, Richard, that um, there's no more miserable person on this planet than a Christian with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ or one foot in the church. He doesn't belong in either place. He's got too much Jesus in him for the world and too much uh, uh, world in him for the church. And so there's that natural tension, that striving that goes along. So the, the reference in James 4 here is the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And just in case you think that's really harsh, verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. So, Rich, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from, let me get to this one, our mobile app from Mick. Uh, why does the Bible say that sin entered the world through Adam only and not Eve in Romans chapter 5, verse 12? Uh, Mick, because Adam is the federal head. By that I mean uh, he is the first human being and he represents all mankind. So while Eve was given to him as a partner and Eve was deceived and sinned first, sin could only come in through the male. That's why it's so important that Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary the human mother, but God was the father. Now that doesn't mean that God and Mary had sex. The Holy Spirit hovered over her and, and, and simply implanted the child uh, because he couldn't have inherited a sin nature. So Adam is our federal head. The first Adam, Paul says. The second Adam is Jesus. One man's sin condemned the many. But through the second Adam, Jesus, the sins of the world could be forgiven. So that's why the sin is passed through man. Uh, That was the perspective, the patriarchal perspective of the Bible. And uh, Adam, not Eve, is our federal head and responsible. Here is a prayer request, actually, from our email inbox from Thomas. Hello, Pastor On. I don't have a question today, but I do have a prayer request. My niece, Amber, is in California but lives in Las Vegas and has messed up her life pretty badly. She was hooked on meth, but she says she's clean because she went through treatment. She also smokes weed and has prescriptions for antipsychotic meds, antidepressant meds, and anti-hallucinogenic meds. Wow. She currently... She's currently wanted for parole violation and wants to hide out at my house. I told her no. I also told her to go face her issues. I told her that she needs to come to Jesus because he loves her. I say I'd be praying. I said I'd be praying for her and that I would get hundreds of other people to pray for. And that's why I sent this to the radio program. I want her more than bathed in prayer. I want her tsunami in prayer. She's only 27 years old. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Thank you, San Antonians and everybody who's hearing this. Uh, Thomas, um, I'll be praying for Amber, and now I know many others will as well. But the thing that really hit my heart, uh, when you said she's only 27 years old, and she's had this kind of pain already in her life, this this degree of sin. The amount of pain and heartbreak in this world caused by sin is absolutely overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. So I'm confident that people, Thomas, will be praying for her. Um, her first name is Amber. That's all we need to know. So uh, if you think about her, the Lord brings her to heart or mind. Keep her in your prayers because when somebody gets to this place... Um, they're pretty much at the end. Whoa, she needs supernatural intervention. Uh, I want to mention one other thing, um, Thomas, and, and uh, you said that she wants to hide out at your house as a Christian, as you know, because you told her, no, we can't do that. There are times we think, well, it's family. you got to help family. That's not helping her. Helping her sin or helping her hide is really not helping her at all. So good going, not, not having her come into your house, putting your family at risk. But at the same time, um, we will keep her in prayer. These are really, really difficult circumstances. And she is so very, very young. Wow, I hope that, hope she gives her heart to Jesus. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. 
Mondays, I don't know why, the phone calls start really, really slowly. Uh, it's always better if you call early because I've got more time for the questions. Here's a question that came in from Andrew. Andrew. Pastor Ron, will Christians know who the Antichrist is when he comes? Andrew, Christians, real Christians now, will be gone before the Antichrist is revealed. Um, he's coming, but uh, he won't be revealed to the world. He won't sort of step out on the public stage until after Christians are gone. So we won't know who he is. You know, uh, Andrew, I've had some people who've tried to argue with me over this. No, I think I know who the Antichrist is. And we've had certain presidents that sometimes Christians thought were the Antichrist. Uh, when he comes, he'll be unlike any political leader this world has ever seen. A man who is supernaturally empowered by the enemy, the devil himself. He will be a great orator. He will have seemingly all the answers. He will bring great comfort. Jesus said when people are saying peace, 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 safety. He said get ready because the worst is coming. Well, he's going to be a man that will win the Nobel Peace Prize. He'll be a man that will be named Time Magazine's Man of the Year in the decade even. Um, he will have the power supernaturally to convince people of things, lies. Uh, but we won't know who he is. One of the things I'm really grateful for, Andrew, is that we who are in Christ will be taken from this, the blessed hope Paul calls it, the rapture of the church, that we can know that we'll be with Jesus before God's wrath, the great tribulation, is poured out on this world. So no, we won't know who the Antichrist is. And frankly, I don't want to. We who are Christians are supposed to be looking for Jesus Christ and his soon return. We're not to spend any time thinking about who the Antichrist is. Here is a related question from Daniel. He says, is the second coming when the rapture takes place? Also, will we live in heaven or on the earth when everything is made new? Uh, Daniel, the second coming has nothing to do with the rapture. Uh, when Jesus calls the church home uh, to be with him, when, when, when the, the, the bell rings, um, he's going to meet us in the air. We're going to be taken up to be with him where he is. John chapter 14 said, Jesus said, look, if I go to be with my father, it means I'm going to come back and take you to be with me where I am. And he begins that whole passage, Daniel, by saying, trust in God, trust also in me. Now, every Christian ought to be really looking forward to the rapture, but, but the rapture has nothing to do with the second coming. Daniel, the second coming can be located in Revelation chapter 19. That's when Jesus comes to the earth. He'll set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It will split in two, and he will destroy his enemies with the word. The same way everything was created. Let there be light, there was light. Well, in the same way, those who oppose him, those who are fighting against him, well, they will be destroyed in an instant. Now, Jesus will bring us with him when he comes for the second coming. Where his inheritance that he comes on his robe, his thigh, will have these words written, he's king of kings and lord of lords. But that's the second coming. That is when the culmination of everything ends, when everything that's wrong is set right. And after a short period of time for cleanup, the, the, the supper of the Lord, when the birds are brought in to clean the carcasses of those who are destroyed, um, that will commence the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. Of course, we will rule and reign with him. So the rapture is going to come just before the Great Tribulation. Jesus' second coming is going to come approximately seven years after that. And then we go into the millennium. Now, the second part of your question, Daniel, I think you're referring to the new heaven or the new earth. And, and I think we'll live in both places. I think we'll live with Jesus. Remember, we're going to have bodies like his. We're going to be... Um, able to be where we want and we're going to want to be with Jesus so I think Jesus will of course rule from heaven but he'll also rule from Jerusalem sort of like a satellite office but remember it'll be completely new everything 
Now, the thousand-year reign of Christ, before that, we will live and rule and reign with Jesus in a redeemed or renewed earth. I had somebody asked me just recently, well, if the earth is going to be renewed, why do we need a new earth? Well, because remember, at the end of the thousand years, the devil is going to be let loose from his prison again to give those who have never had a free will choice to accept Jesus Christ on their own. Uh, they're going to have that choice. And the Bible, unfortunately, says that he's going to to, to deceive so many, they'll be like the numbers of, of grains of sand on the seashore. That's just a Jewish way of saying lots and lots of people are going to be deceived. And sin, for a very short time, is going to return to this earth. So our renewed earth will be defiled again by sin. And that's when Peter talks about the elements melting away and and, uh, everything will be destroyed and made completely new. The new heaven and the new earth. And Daniel, I think we're going to be able to live gloriously in both places. I hope that helps. There's so much confusion about Jesus coming. The rapture is not a coming. I told uh, the first question, um, he's going to call us up and meet us in the air. That's not coming to earth. That's calling us to him. And then, at the end of the Great Tribulation, he will settle things once and for all. After that, no more sin, no more pain, no injustice, just Jesus and perfection. Boy, it really sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> Here is a question from Adam. Uh, Pastor on this Proverbs chapter 31, verses 6 and 7 allow drinking. Let me read the passage and then we'll get there. Uh, verse 6 says, Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Let me go up one verse. Um, two verses, actually. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave bear, beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all of the oppressed of their rights. Then he says, give beer to those who are perishing and wine to those who are in anguish. So no, this is not a, a, an acceptance of drinking at all. In fact, this is, um, um, if you're clear-headed and you're thinking right, if you're walking with Jesus, this is um, the opposite. You, you don't drink wine or you don't drink beer. Um, b- because you don't want to compromise your your witness. On the other hand, the people, and this is so true in the world that we live in, you see the people who are mastered by alcohol of any kind, and they truly are perishing, and their lives are in anguish. And he says, let them drink and forget their poverty. Oh, he's What he's saying basically is, look, they can get in such a drunken stupor, they can't even remember what they were doing. So I think that's an important thing. This is a, a, a Proverbs. It's a book of, of principles. It's a book of poetry. We don't make doctrine out of it. But no, it doesn't permit drinking. Instead, it warns of the dangers of drinking. Now, let me talk about drinking for a minute because um, from time to time I get questions on this and it's something we Christians want to know. Is it okay to drink? Well, uh, Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And for everybody who's a Christian, we ought to look, and I, I, I don't mean this as a pun, but we ought to look very soberly at the issue of drinking. And now, these days, we can include uh, marijuana, which is legal in so many states. Um, we're, we're to be clear-minded, sober-minded. We're not to be impaired. And if we have to come home and drink or smoke marijuana to, to chill out, to relax, to get any sleep, if we do it to take the edge off, um, then there's something wrong. So I, I can't say drinking beer or drinking wine is a sin. We can say unequivocally that being drunk is a sin. That means if you smoke marijuana, you're drunk the minute you start. The whole idea is to be impaired. The whole idea is to get high. So while I would like to be able to say that drinking, because you don't get high right away, is a sin because I've seen so much damage caused by drinking. The Bible says moderate drinking is okay. It is never okay to use marijuana moderately. And as Christians, we need to stop asking these questions and stop trying to justify what we want to do as sin 
and try to make it something that God's okay with. So, Adam, I hope that answers your question, plus a little bit more. Rob says, the New Testament tells us to stop sinning, yet we keep sinning. Does that mean it's okay to sin that God understands? Rob, uh, it's never okay to sin. Sin is to miss the mark. Sin is to, to, to aim to be with Jesus, and we don't quite get there. So all sin is condemned. Now, here's the great thing. Because we're humans, we have flesh and blood bodies. We, we battle with our flesh, our carnal nature. But we have, when we sin, the Bible tells us, an advocate. Uh, a lawyer is what the word means, one who pleads our case. And, of course, our advocate is Jesus, who Hebrews 7 says ever lives to make intercession for us. That doesn't make sinning okay. It just means that when we fall, when we mess up, our advocate is on the job. And all we have to do is say, I'm sorry, First John 1, 9. I think that's the one verse I use more in this radio program than any other. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when we mess up, there's a remedy. But the problem is, because we can't be perfect, too many stop trying to be. And the the Bible tells us that we should be aiming for perfection, always. So, Rob, yeah, the Bible tells us to flee from sexual immorality. It doesn't mean an occasional dalliance in sexual immorality is okay. The Bible tells us don't be drunk with wine, but gives us an option. But be ye filled with the Spirit. And it's in the continuous present tense, so it's be ye filled continually being filled. So it's never okay to sin. But when we do, because we're flesh, then we have Jesus who pleads our case. So please don't ever think it's okay to sin. Instead, do the best that we can to stop sinning. I can say this, Rob, and this always upsets people, but it's always possible not to sin. It means we never have to give in. We do because we're weak. But because Jesus forgives it doesn't mean it's okay. And when we sin, our fellowship with God is broken. And when our fellowship with God is broken, then we're going to continue to sin because then we're all on our own. So, I hope that helps. Ted wants to know, I think we've got, what, three minutes? Okay. We'd love your calls. Phones have been quiet. 340-9585. Ted wants to know, how should I respond to a Christian who says he saw Jesus? I would tell him that the Bible says Jesus lives in unapproachable light. Now, there's there's a double-edged question, Ted. Um... Jesus has appeared to people. Um, there are so many credible reports, especially in countries where there is no light. Uh, Muslim countries in particular, Jesus appears to people in dreams and visions. Um, but they get saved. They get saved if that's the case. On the other hand, in this country, Jesus doesn't really appear to us. We have so much light. We can find Jesus on every street corner. We can find him in the Bible every day. We have access to him every day. If Jesus appears to somebody, it's a dire emergency. Um, So I would tell him, first of all, not to share it. If Jesus really appeared, then it would be something that would be so personal he wouldn't share it with people. The second thing I would tell him is that probably if Jesus appeared to him, it would be in a dream or a vision. And then I would press him a little bit on the question, what did he say? And the message that's communicated will probably either validate or invalidate the experience. Here's what I know Jesus would say to us if he appeared to us. Stop sinning. Question we had a moment ago. Do right walk with me. He would give his marching orders. This is my will. But most of the time, when people say they saw Jesus, 
they didn't really see him at all. Sometimes, Ted, we want to see him so badly. You know, the Apostle Paul, we're currently going through the book of Acts on our Friday night studies. And the Apostle Paul saw Jesus three times. But it was always when his life was in danger. Before he ever went on his first missionary journey, he went for three years to be taught in the Arabian wilderness by Jesus personally. Paul was a very special messenger and apostle. That kind of stuff just doesn't happen to us. So I'd be skeptical, but at the same time, it is an experience that can be validated by the Bible. So what you'd want to do is ask your friend, what was the message? And let's talk about that. So, Ted, I hope that helps. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Again, the phones have been quiet, so we'd love your live calls. 340-9585 or toll-free, you can call us at 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and I will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the monday show 340-9585 let me remind you men this week is and i've covered everybody's prayers but men, this is the week of our men's retreat. We leave on Thursday. It begins Thursday night. It's over Saturday at noon. Uh, and we'd love to have you join us if you are uh, wanting to make a connection with the Lord and want to meet a bunch of other men who are sold out for Jesus and maybe um, be ministered to. Uh, we're going to be at Camp Buckner. I think the price is like $120 or something around that area. You can go to calvaryessay.com uh, and, and get some more details. It's as inexpensive as we can possibly make it, and it'll be a great weekend. Uh, 200 men will be there, and uh, be a great time. Eric Coburn, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Frisco, Texas, is going to be our guest speaker. I'll be speaking uh, one time. Um, it's always a great, great weekend, and this is the weekend. So we would love for everybody to be praying. People would get saved. Uh, a lot of our guys will bring unsaved family members or friends or coworkers. Um, almost always they get saved, so so please be in prayer for that. Um, here's a question from Josh. What do you think, me, me, what do, do you think is the greatest threat to Christianity in the church? Now, Josh, I'm not so sure what you mean in the church. Um, we have so many threats to Christianity. But even before I start answering, let me suggest this to you. Never forget Jesus' promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. There are times when we look around and we see things that look so bleak in a world that's completely given over to evil. And we think, how could things get any worse? We wonder why the church doesn't have more influence in the world. Uh, many of us, we pray for revival. Um, Jesus is the one who's in control. We live in a time in these last days um, where we're told things are going to get worse. We're told that men are going to have the appearance of godliness but, but lack the power thereof. It's not as though our lamp has completely gone out in this dark world. But Josh, it, it means that there are going to be times we look around and wonder what happened. What happened to Jesus' bride? We're just coming to the end. So let me talk about what I think the greatest threat. Now, I'm going to mention a couple of them, maybe three. Um, I think the greatest problem in the church is biblical illiteracy. We, Josh, have become a church culture that wants to be comforted. We want to be exhorted and encouraged, but we don't want to be taught. 
We'd rather be entertained. We want to go to church so we'll feel good or feel better about ourselves. And I think that stems from a real lack of expositional preaching of the Bible. Now, I'm not a preacher, Josh. I'm a Bible teacher. Uh, I hope I'm also an exhorter. But uh, if you've ever heard me teach the Bible, I'm very, very, very direct. And and it, it, instead of that being the norm, it's just not any longer. It's just not any longer. I've got a, a casual friend. I'd, I'd love to, to, to have more time to spend with him, but... But uh, his radio show follows this one. Uh, Pastor Randy Draper from Maranatha Bible Church, not too far from us. Um, he, he can be so direct sometimes it hurts. Now, he can pull it off. He's got a great personality and a great sense of humor. But he's really direct with his people. His people, if they mess up, it's not his fault. Well, that's always been the way I wanted to be perceived. I want people to know I love them, love them enough to... to, to tell them the truth and there are times when people just don't like to sit under that kind of Bible teaching I've actually had people say to me Pastor Ron I know what you're doing but I come to church to feel better about myself well I think when we open the Bible it's a mirror to our souls I don't think God wants us to feel better I think he wants us to be convicted so I personally think Josh that's the, the, the greatest problem facing the church. It's one of the reasons that the church is so impotent. We simply don't trust the Bible to teach it. So we tell stories. We do dramas. We have near professional worship. But there's no conviction. No conviction. I think the second problem, Josh, is lethargy. Um, there's no sense of urgency. You know, the first century church, they expected the return of Jesus any day. Let me rephrase. They expected the return of Jesus every day. I think they got up in the morning thinking this could be the day. And it motivated the choices they made in, in life. The decisions were always all and only about Jesus. What if he comes today? I want to be found serving him. And I just don't think there's that sense of urgency in the church. We are way too complacent. And um, I believe with all of my heart, Josh, that those are the two biggest problems. The third is that we're unwilling to share our message. We simply don't evangelize. Churches become a place for sort of a holy huddle for believers instead of an equipping station. You know what I want to happen every Sunday when people leave Calvary Chapel? I want them to go out, and you know, we Christians, we go out to lunch or we go out to dinner. We, we do something on Sundays when church is over. I want everyone to be equipped to wherever they go to tell people that they run into about Jesus. I want them to be full of joy and full of laughter so that the, the unbelieving world will look at them and, and wonder what's with those people. And then we can tell them about Jesus. And I want them to be equipped with with the how-to. And, and we've lost that sense of urgency. Think about two of the things that I just said. One is that we've we've lost a sense of urgency about the return of Jesus. I said that was the, the primary source of power in the first century church, a church that really, literally changed the world forever. The second thing I said is, we don't share Jesus. And that's all they did. That's all they did. If we don't study our Bibles, we won't know what to share. But the sad thing is, even people that are serious students of their Bible, they're unwilling to share this treasure that we have in Christ. And and I think that has rendered us less than impotent. I think that's the reason that we have so little influence in the world. And so the point of all this is that we need to be a part of a church 
where those things aren't the case. I know personally, and this is something that I'm being convicted of right now as I speak, I personally don't speak about the return of Jesus as much as I used to. I used to do it all the time. Maybe it's because I think people have heard it so much. I know it's in one ear and out the other, but I did mention it in the message that I did yesterday in our three services. But I think that's something that people need to be reminded. Jesus could come right now. And if he comes, we want to be found faithful. And so we've got to restore that sense of urgency. When those three things change, Josh, I think then the power of the Holy Spirit will be evident in and through his church. Let me make one other clarification. It can sound pretty pessimistic when you're saying, well, we lack this, we lack this, or we lack that. But there are churches who are doing a wonderful job. Churches who are only about winning the lost. And Christians, real Christians who serve so faithfully in church. That they're doing what God has called and gifted them to do. And those are the churches that God is going to use. You know, Josh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote seven letters to real historical churches. Of the seven letters, only two of them were positive. The other five were not. What we all need to do is be a part of a church that's like the two. Where the word is being taught, where there are opportunities to use our gifts to serve. Too much of church has become a spectator sport. We need to get in the game, and we do that by being equipped and serving. We need to get up as Christians individually every morning and sort of figuratively looking at the eastern sky and thinking, is today the day, Lord, that you could come back? We have to have that sense of urgency. Because we live in the last days, and because the time is short, the Apostle Paul says that we're to redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. Josh, that's my two cents, whatever it's worth to you. I hope that answers your question. Andy says... Can you explain original sin simply? Um, Sin entered the world through one man. We were all born with a sin nature. We were all born, Andy, condemned, guilty already. Jesus said that to Nicodemus just before telling him that he must be born again. It's why we need to be born again. So... Original sin is just the, the, the sin nature that we're born with. Sin entered through Adam. Now, here's the problem, Andy. Some people say, well, it's not fair that I get judged for what Adam did. None of us are going to be judged for Adam's sin. The residue of Adam's sin infected the entirety of the human race. That's why, by the way, Jesus had to be God. He had to be born of a virgin. But having said that, the only sins that we're going to stand in judgment for are our own sins. Never once, when every knee is bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord, never once am I going to be asked to answer for Adam's sin. There's a book of Adam's life in heaven, but there's also a book of my life and your life. And what that means is that because we were victims of original sin, we sinners. We, we are sinners who sin. As Christians, we're saints. We prefer that. But we're saints who sin. And that's why we need to confess our sins and give Jesus the opportunity to cleanse us from all sin. So that's as simple as I can explain original sin. I think one other thing that I can add, Andy, is that Original sin is the reason we need to be born again. The Catholic Church, as many of you know, they believe that infant baptism, the same thing as Lutheran Church and and and, and some others, Anglican Church, um, they believe that infant baptism deals with original sin. It does not. Nicodemus was a 
religious man, the most religious man. He would have been baptized in a Jewish baptism ceremony, circumcised on the eighth day of his life, marking the covenant that Jews had with God. And yet Jesus told him, you must be born again. That means we have to start completely over. That's why we have to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Original sin has an answer, and the answer is Jesus. Sherry wants to know, my question is about amillennialism. How can we argue against it? Sherry, I don't think we have to argue against it. Now, um, for those of you in the audience who may not know, the millennium refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. To put an A in front of it means that people don't believe in it. Theist means God. Atheist means don't believe in God. Well, um, all millennialists don't believe that there's going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Now, Sherry, the best argument for it is Revelation chapter 20. Six times, from verse 2 through verse 7, six times the reference is made to a thousand years. Revelation 22, for a thousand years, chapter 20, verse 3, until the thousand years were ended. Chapter 20, verse 4, with Christ a thousand years. Chapter 4. 20 verse 5, until the thousand years were ended. Verse 6, for a thousand years. And verse 7 in chapter 20 of Revelation, when the thousand years are over. I don't know how much more uh, clear the Spirit of God could have made it. Now, now the Amelinus would say, well, Revelation is a book that you don't take literally. It's, a, it's, it's an allegory, or they're speaking in symbolism. That's pretty clear. A thousand, a thousand, a thousand, a thousand. Then when the thousand years are over, how can that be understood in any other way? So, Sherry, that's the best argument. But but we've got references to the millennial reign of Christ on earth all the way back in the Old Testament prophecies. Read those passages in Isaiah, and most notably those from chapter 60 on. We're talking about a literal reign and he describes literal behavior. And if you allegorize those or spiritualize those, you're distorting the entirety of the book of Revelation. You're rendering useless all of the prophecies that dealt with Jesus' millennial reign on earth. So we don't have to argue against it. What we have to do is just show them the word. This is what it declares. And then ask them, okay, what do you do with these passages of Scripture? And if they say, well, we don't believe they're literal, we're spiritualizing, or, or, or we believe it's an allegory, then ask them this question, Sherry. What other Bible passages do you spiritualize? To me, this is the silliest argument Sherry, that that we run into. Um, There are churches, Presbyterians most notably, that teach that we are already in the millennial reign of Christ on earth. How disappointed would we be if we found that this world that we live in right now is the time when Jesus is ruling and reigning for a thousand years? Doesn't appear that way to me. All we have to do is look around. But they would suggest that the church is going to usher in. That moment where we're with Jesus in heaven forever. So they just sort of forget all about it when in fact the Bible goes out of its way to make it as clear as it possibly can. So Sherry, I hope that helps a little bit. Please understand, when something is written as clearly in the Bible as that is, then it's not something that we have to argue against or prove against. Um, The onus is on them to justify a position when the Bible is so clear. Andrew wants to know, should there be a balance between contemporary worship and hymn worship in churches? Andrew, I I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. 
um, uh, I know what we do in our church. We we do contemporary Christian worship. There are uh, a few hymns that we do, um, but there are some new arrangements of some hymns that make them more contemporary. Um, I, I think these are individual choices for churches and pastors and worship leaders. Um, I just don't know. Well, the one thing that I, I'm not a fan of, Andrew, is churches that have uh, sort of a, an old school worship set of hymns, and then and then they have a contemporary service, uh, either a little earlier or a little later. Uh, usually, it's a contemporary service that is is a, a little more crowded. Um, but but you know what? I think the church needs to worship together. And and I don't think God cares whether we're singing. Um, a hymn or whether we're singing uh, something contemporary with, with guitars and microphones and, and drums. I don't think it matters. Here's why I think the argument can be so divisive. We have a tendency to, to be rigid. Well, this is what I prefer. But we're not going to church for what we prefer. I mean, clearly when the Lord was working through the Fanny Crosbys of the world or the, the, the John and, and Charles Wesleys of the world, uh, the George Beverly Shays of the world, those who were so gifted in, in writing and performing these hymns, and I just threw out a few names. There's, there's thousands of them. God was working by His Spirit through those men and through those women. If we take the approach that only hymns ought to be sung in church. Basically, what we're saying is the Spirit of God isn't working in people today the way He worked in them before. What's important to me is whether or not we're playing contemporary Christian music or doing hymns. The most important thing to me as a pastor of our church, Andrew, is the heart of the people leading us into worship. I want to know their lives match up with what they are singing. I want to know that they're, they consider being on that stage a privilege. I want people to be moved by worship. I have been moved by hymns um, and contemporary worship. So I think it's just a matter of preference, a matter of style, but I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. And that, for me, is the key. If the Spirit of God is giving people music, if He's given people gifts to do it, um, then we'd be quenching the work of the Spirit if we insisted on sticking to hymns or singing a cappella. So I think this is an area that we have freedom in but at the same time we want to give people the opportunity to be used by God to use their gifts and if we'll do that I think we'll enjoy whatever worship there is yesterday in our worship set um, the last song we did is called the Revelation song uh, and and uh, it's so powerful that song and when I get up I go up to my to the pulpit just when the song is about ready to, to end and I look out over the sanctuary and see the people with hands raised, some with tears streaming down their faces, some moving and obviously just so into the worship. It thrills my heart. It thrills my heart. And then I look at the people who are on the, on the stage and because I know their lives and I know their stories. Well, that thrills my heart too. It's a matter of style. And all I know, Andrew, is that the Holy Spirit is still working. Well, we only have time maybe for one more question. Here is one from Donald. I'll end with this one today. He says, First Timothy chapter 2 seems to indicate that a divorced man cannot be a pastor. What does the husband of one wife mean? Well, it doesn't mean that a man can't be divorced. The literal Greek, Donald, is uh, a one-woman man. Now, remember a couple of things. In the ancient world, there were cultures with uh, multiple wives. It was a, 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 not an unusual thing at all. And, and so there would be people that would get saved. 
and they'd have multiple wives and families from those those wives um, and and Paul is basically disqualifying somebody like that from being a pastor but it doesn't mean a divorced man cannot be a pastor has Jesus ever once punished or disciplined somebody who's a victim of somebody else's sin if the wife of a faithful pastor cheated on him and divorced him, left him for somebody else, why would that disqualify a pastor? If a man was divorced before he was born again, he gives his heart to Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. That divorces as though it never happened, no matter what the reasons were. And we get a new start in Christ. So I think we, we have to look in at each instance, Donald. But of course, the ideal is that one man, one woman, together serving Jesus, partners in the ministry. Donald, yesterday I was able to tell the church that, that Paul and I celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary yesterday. I don't know what I would do without her. That's kind of what God intends. She is my ministry partner. I'm her ministry partner. And that's the ideal. So I hope that answers the question. Please remember that tonight we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at 7 o'clock. You are invited. Ladies, you can watch at calvaryessay.com. Dr. Sheba Paley will be teaching the ladies in 1 Thessalonians. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.